Welcome everyone to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. This is John Hewlin, host of the show. So excited that you're here today. And I wanted to take this opportunity to briefly introduce this week's episode. So on this episode, I just can't begin to tell you how excited I am. This is part one of two of my interview with Lindsay Moran. Now, for those of you who don't know Lindsay, she is a former CIA operative. That's right. She was part of the clandestine services of the CIA. Super, super cool. I mean, super spy sort of thing. I mean, it, oh, I am so pumped. I can't wait for you guys to hear my interview with her. Some really, really cool stuff. In there. So sit back, relax, and enjoy part one of my interview with Lindsay Moran. This is Relationships and Revenue, the show where real answers come from real discussions about what holds men back in their relationships at home and in business. A better bottom line at work means improving life at home. This show is all about helping you become a better entrepreneur and a better man. Hi, I'm Lindsay Moran, former CIA operative and author of the book, Blowing My Cover, and I'm here for Relationships and Revenue with John Hulin. Welcome back, everyone, to the Relationships and Revenue Podcast. I am your host, John Hewlin. As always, thrilled you decided to spend some of your hard-earned time with me. And as you heard from the introduction, I have Lindsay Moran. Lindsay, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, fantastic. Now, folks, Lindsay is a very special and unique guest. And there are many reasons that I use that term to describe her, not the least of which is one that she used to describe herself. And that is, she is a former CIA operative. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Lindsay, that was for 20 years. Is that right? No, I was with the CIA from 1998 till 2003. But then okay. I spent uh, the bulk of my career following the CIA with kind of one foot on the, the pier of doing media work and one foot on the boat of continuing to do uh, intelligence, community consulting and training. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And folks, we'll get more into that here in just a minute. So, but she does have over 20 years experience between being with the CIA and what she did after that and things like covert operations, investigations, social impact and communications. Now that's impressive right there. I mean, we could stop, spend the whole time talking just about that, but there's so much more that I want to unpack. Um, she's an expert on human intelligence, on espionage, and national security. Okay, first of all, I'm thinking, you know, I don't need to be checking out movies or books about Jason Bourne. I just need to talk to Lindsay about how things really are because I can't imagine that real life would be less exciting than what we see in those movies. And again, we can talk about that in just a minute. Uh, now, I do want to highlight something else that she's doing right now. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this today, and you'll understand why when we get to the end. Uh, she's the national spokesperson and part of the development team for Deliver Fund which is a nonprofit intelligence organization that utilizes cutting edge technology to eliminate human trafficking. So that is definitely something we will be talking more about, but in a future episode. So keep your eyes and ears open for that. That will be coming probably the first of next year. Uh, she also mentioned she's the author of the book, Blowing My Cover. Um, now, in addition to writing that book, now, Lindsay, you've written like countless articles and opinion pieces 
in all different kinds of places. Now, you tell me if I'm missing any, because these are the ones that I just did the research on. So I've got New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, Huffington Post. I mean, am I in the right ballpark there? <laughs> I've written for a lot of different places. Yeah, I'm, I love writing. Writing is probably my first love. Um, but I've never wanted writing to be the thing that I that I do to make money or the thing that I make my career out of, because that sort of, I feel like would take the the love of it out for me. Gotcha. And at one point you were an English lit teacher. Is that right? I was. Yeah. At the beginning, very beginning of my career, I taught English literature, both in uh, Sofia, Bulgaria, the capital of Bulgaria, um, and then also in the United States at a private French international school in the United States. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, by the way, folks, she happened to go to Harvard and Columbia, and she's also a Fulbright scholar. So Lindsay's no dummy, folks. Trust me. <laughs> tell you. Not that the CIA takes dummies. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there's impressive and then there's over the top. And well, it's just uh, the overeducated spine. We can talk at some point. I have <laughs> conflicted views on on higher education in the Ivy League nowadays, but we can talk about that today too. Maybe. Interesting. Okay, that uh, I don't know if that's a recordable kind of conversation or not. <laughs> uh, now, but you've also been on as far as being interviewed, you know, for your expertise. You've been on BBC, CBS, CNN. MSNBC, you know, all the alphabet ones out there. You've been on at some point uh, sh sharing your expertise. Now, is that something that commonly happens? Is that something you do quite a bit still? I do do it quite a bit. Um, I kind of fell into being an on-air commentator and providing my expertise. When, when my book, Blowing My Cover, came out, it was really um, the first of its kind in that there had been mm. many CIA memoirs None had been written by a woman, uh, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and mine was the first, I think, or so I've been told, that really put like a human face on what it is to be a spy. Okay. And stemming from the book, I did a lot of book publicity when the book first came out. Now, I should add that I was eight months pregnant when my book came out. Wow. So eight months pregnant when I started doing <laughs> book publicity. My first appearance was Bill O'Reilly. And sometimes they wouldn't mention that I was pregnant. So the camera would pan away and I just looked like a CIA officer who'd gone to speed. <laughs> oh, okay. Any donuts. <laughs> but but from, from doing book publicity, I found uh, that I really liked giving commentary, that I was kind of a natural on going on TV mm. and speaking. I don't get nervous. Um, I had been the commencement speaker when I graduated from Harvard and spoke for 27,000 people. You nice. know, I was 21 years old and I just enjoyed it and was good at it. And I kind of became, I would say, like a, a de facto person to appear on air and, and talk about intelligence uh, areas and, and offer my expertise there. OK, OK. Um, well, since you brought up the book, um, let's jump into that blowing my cover. Uh, first of all, what made you decide to even write the book? Well, that's a very good question. You know, some criticism, full disclosure, some criticism after the book came out because the book ruffled a lot of feathers at the agency. Uh, it was not meant to be an indictment of the CIA at all. Um, but the tone of it is a little bit cheeky. Uh, 
it pulled back the curtain to a certain extent on the CIA and and sort of dispelled this myth of the agency as this kind of mythical, omnipotent organization. But in writing the book, I, I first of all, wasn't intending to blow anybody else's cover um, but my own. I had been undercover and I actually lobbied the CIA to have my cover lifted when I left the agency, in part because I wanted to write a book. And I was very honest uh, with the agency about the intention to write a book. Now, you can't, as a CIA employee, employee of any kind, you cannot just write a book and take it to an agent or a publishing house. You have to have that material cleared by the agency in advance. But back to your question, why why would I write a book? Um, I It had been my childhood dream to be a CIA uh, undercover operative. And joining the agency, being accepted into the clandestine service, which is significantly more competitive, you know, than even getting accepted into Harvard um, for different reasons wow. and different criteria. Um, but that was the culmination of a lifelong dream for me. And as I write about in the book, I very quickly started to realize, uh, number one, that I had been a little bit naive in what I imagined the career was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And number two, that this agency that this organization that I had always revered from the outside looking in was quite different on the inside. Mm. And and the third, well, one of the reasons I left the agency, there were some ideological reasons, but there was also the fact that it's a very difficult life to lead when you lead a double life. Yeah. And I decided that um, I didn't want to devote my career to that. Um, I didn't want to devote my life to that. I very much wanted to have children at the time. Uh, I didn't have children and I didn't want to, I looked at the CIA women and men um, and the sacrifices they had to make and impact it had on their families when you're living a lie like that. And I didn't want it. But I also, there was a part of me that realized I had a story to tell and it was kind of a funny story. In, and in some ways, kind of a story that could be inspiring to other people, not just women, but to other people who went into intelligence or who wanted to go into intelligence. It was kind of a story about what happens when you realize your lifelong professional dream, when it actually comes true, and it's not what you thought it was going to be. It's not all that it was cracked up to be. And how do you pivot? How do you change course? And changing course when you're working for the CIA, it's not an easy thing to do. It's like getting out was almost as hard as getting in. But more than anything, I wanted to show other people, other Americans, what it really is like to be what most people think of as a spy, the human side of it, what you don't see in the Jason Bourne movies, what you never saw in James Bond movies, what you don't see in shows like Alias or, you know, shows that kind of unrealistically portray or glorify what it is to be an undercover operative. And I was like, I have a really, I've got a good story to tell. It's a human story. And I knew that I could do it in a way that would not expose any secrets, that I'd have to do it in a way that would not expose any secrets or put um, anyone else or the agency at risk because I had to have it cleared by the CIA. Gotcha. Okay. So even though you're out, they still have to clear that. Absolutely. And I do not mess around with that. There have been CIA officers who have written books and published books, either self-published or in a, in a couple of cases actually gotten a publishing house to publish their books without getting clearance. 
And that can land you in jail. I mean, it's wrong. You sign a, you know, you sign an agreement with the CIA when you join that you will let them vet anything that you're writing. And I take that very seriously. I practically send my Christmas, well, back when I kept on top of Christmas cards, but I, I would practically send my Christmas card to the CIA in advance for them to clear it. Um you know, but both as a personal safeguard, but also, you know, just to up, upheld the the agreement that I signed with the agency. OK, OK. So I got to ask this. So you, you've written this book. It came out with clearly quite a bit of acclaim. Have you considered writing a second? I have. <laughs> and for years now, I've 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 gotten the question, when are you going to write another book? And mm-hmm. the, and I always kind of answer it the same way, which is which is very true. Um, I had something to say and I said it. And when I have something else to say, I say it again in a book form. And I should be clear that I spent a year of my life working on a novel after, after blowing my cover came out, uh, my editor and agent wanted me to write like a spy novel, kind of campy, fun, female driven spy novel. Okay. I don't read can't be fun, female driven spy novels. That's not my thing. Um, and I did spend a year trying to write a no- writing a novel. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> my editor and my agent said, you know, you have to revisit this. You're going to have to rewrite it. And I just didn't want to. I did not enjoy mm-hmm. the process. I didn't like the product. I think I've managed to destroy all copies of it. <laughs> all that said, back to your question, I'm a, I'm a nonfiction writer at heart. Um, even if I write something fiction, it has to come from, you know, my personal experience or nonfiction. So almost like historical fiction. Yeah, kind of like historical fiction, but also I think my tone, the tone with which I write is, is, is a personal tone. So I, there has to be kind of a personal element uh, to it. But interesting, you should ask me that question now. I do have a project that I am just commencing work on um, mm. with someone else. And those are the only details that I'm going to share. Okay. But I can tell you this, for the first time since I wrote Blowing My Cover, I have that burning sensation in me of, of a story that I want to get out there. And that's kind of how, as a writer, that's how writing works for me. I'm not like a commercial writer who can sit down and churn out, you know, a formulaic novel or something like that. You, most of my best writing comes from me having something, having a story that I want to share or having a point that I want to make. And I will tell you this, uh, the, the next book I write, it's not going to be a, a sequel to Blowing My Cover, but it will be just as interesting, if not more so, subject matter. And, okay. and, and still stemming from the world of um, intelligence and, and actually the war on terror. Okay, okay. Well, okay. Sign me up. I'm I'm ready to buy it now. I'm ready to buy it now. Buy several copies and hand them out. You can pre-order it. There's no title yet. No, I'm kidding. But um, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully by the time that I that I speak to you again, I will have made uh, more headway in, in that regard. Nice, nice. Well, very much looking forward to that. Very much so. Um, you know, folks. Uh, earlier, we talked a lot about the different titles and roles that Lindsay has had. And the one that I didn't do, and okay, for those of you who are fans of the show, I'm going to hear about it from you. I already know it, so I'm going to say this. But she has her most important title, and she alluded to it a little bit earlier, is mom. I think she would agree with me that that's her most important title. It is truly being a mom, 
uh, to my two sons who are now teenagers, 17 and 15, is uh, by far the most important role I've had in my life. And mm. and with everything I've done in my life, I would erase all of it, eradicate all of it, you know, in order to to safeguard that relationship and that role, um, because it is the most important thing I've done. And, you know, beyond proud of of my kids, um, they are who they are in, independent of me. But it is having I didn't realize it at the time uh, when I left the agency. I did want to start a family. I didn't realize it at the time, but that would become the most important role that I've had in my life. Mm. Okay, we, we, I kind of attacked this in a slightly odd way. Uh, it wasn't intentional, but it just kind of came up in our conversation. So I'm going to take us back a little bit. So take us back to the Harvard and Columbia days. I mean, I know you filled us in a little bit with it had been a lifelong dream to become, you know, a spy, if you will. Because, yeah, when you're a kid, that's kind of glamorous and that sort of thing. At least what we see of it, which clearly you've already said, not so much that way, but... What was the process like for you going from there to becoming a CIA operative? Well, it was a long and arduous process. And as I said, it was it's getting into the CIA, particularly into the clandestine service, uh, which is the part of the CIA where undercover operatives operate, um, was extremely selective. And because I did this in Actually, when I first approached the CIA, it was the mid-1990s. So this was really, you know, the CIA didn't have a website. I mean, people weren't communicating every day via text and email. I didn't have a cell phone. You know, nobody I knew had a cell phone. So when I applied to the CIA, I quite literally typed up a letter, you know, folded it in thirds, put it in an envelope, Central Intelligence Agency, Langley, Virginia, a, a letter, you know, with my resume, which at that time was, <laughs> was very scant because I was <laughs> I was a young woman. Um, and uh, interestingly, I, I did hear from the agency, you know, we, this, these were the days of snail mail. And that began the process of uh, applying to the agency um, meetings, a uh, secret meeting in a hotel room in San Francisco, where I was living in the time, living at the time. Uh, that then progressed into coming to Virginia and going through a week-long battery of tests with some other applicants um, that wow. culminated with a polygraph. Gotcha. And I'm I'm assuming you can't really say what the tests are. Well, I can say that there's there's a whole slew of both um, sort of intellectual aptitude, psychological tests. Um, you know, they really uh, the the characteristics that they're looking for particularly to be an undercover operative are kind of so unique and it's almost like this perfect storm or you know stew of different qualities and characteristics and skills that, that you have to have but a lot of it is based on uh, your psychology mm. and you know one of my CIA instructors used to put it in in such an apt way um because he said we're looking for criminals with morals and then interesting Okay. Yeah, and that always really stuck with me because you have to get people who are willing to break rules because your job as an undercover operative is you're you're traveling to a foreign country and you're breaking the laws of that country. You know, it is against the law of every other country for a U.S. intelligence officer to come in and steal secrets. That's essentially what we're doing. 
So you need someone who's who's subversive in a way, who's able to lie, who, who's able to lie, cheat and steal, but is never going to lie, cheat and steal against the U.S. government or U.S. interests. So it's it's kind of like a very interesting paradox. But for that reason, they do many, many psychological tests. And and then there's also, you know, drug tests, the polygraph test. Um, sure. The polygraph test is I've lie detector tests have been scientifically debunked as a way to determine if someone's lying. But I will say I completely understand why the CIA and uh, other organizations within the intelligence community or law enforcement use them because they are a very powerful psychological tool. That is, it's 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 kind of impossible to beat a polygraph because the the specter when they tell you you failed, you know, that psychologically messes with your mind. And a lot of people do end up revealing things that they normally wouldn't reveal. And I think that's kind of the brilliance of the polygraph. Mm-hmm. But uh, they want people who are ethical, who are moral, who are patriotic, who will not be susceptible to recruitment pitches or development from mm. other foreign intelligence services. But those same people have to be willing to take incredible risks and to lie to the people closest to them, to lie to their families, to lie to their spouses and their children. So it's it's someone who's really got to be willing to operate in the gray for the greater good. Wow. I can imagine. Okay. So there's this intense process before you ever get in. That's just to get in. Now, tell us a little bit more about what it's like once they say yes to you and then you in turn say yes to them. There obviously has, there's a training involved. What's that like? So the training, uh, at least for the clandestine service, is super fun, or in my opinion, it was super fun. Um, it's also kind of stressful uh, because one of the things that they're trying to do in training is they're trying to put maximum pressure on on you, on the 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 trainees, because if you're going to mess up or if you're going to crack under the pressure, they want you to do that while you're in training and on U.S. Mm-hmm. soil, um, because the consequences if you're overseas could be far more grave. But when I went through the training, the first part of first, you, you spend some time at headquarters, CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. And that's not revealing a secret to say where it is. It's well marked, uh, well marked off the GW Parkway um, here in the D.C. area. But you spend some time in in training just at CIA headquarters, kind of learning how the whole organization works. And really, this is pretty extensive because until you've joined the CIA, you don't really have an idea of how it all works. So uh, you spend some time in headquarters doing different rotations um, in your operational field, being a desk officer, uh, supplying, I mean, providing real support to what are called case officers or operators overseas. So it's a little bit like jumping in the deep end first. I mean, you're doing, you know, real work and just getting a feel for how intelligence is collected overseas how that intelligence is then not manipulated, but um, refined within headquarters, sources and methods protected, and then disseminated to lawmakers and the president and, and, and Congress. So there's about three months of that. And then we did um, our paramilitary training. And the paramilitary training was super fun. It was like hmm. land navigation and driving boats around really fast. And there was a course called defensive driving where you really like you 
take old beater cars and crash them through barriers. (laughs) That was the kind of stuff that probably people imagine you're going to do in your career. And really, you never do. But it was super fun. (laughs) Um, And the best part was becoming airborne qualified, performing a number of jumps out of an airport static line jumps um, such that we were each airborne qualified. Very scary, but very exhilarating. And just, you know, the kind of skill or I mean, the kind of extreme sporting adventure that I never thought I would be paid to do. (laughs) And then following um, paramilitary training, then there is some training that all undercover operatives go through, and that's tradecraft training. And that's where you really learn the nuts and bolts of being being a spy or what most people think of a spy. And that, you know, encompasses being able to detect surveillance, make sure you're not being followed, um, how to develop human sources, how to operate in alias and, you know, all the kind of stuff that, I mean, it sounds really glamorous and it's funny because when you, you know, actually go out in the field and do all this stuff, there's a, astounding amount of paperwork that is it's not like you go on a mission and mission accomplished and that's it i mean every time you do something operational you have to write about it to headquarters and so one of the ways in which i um was able to cope with this extremely high pressure uh experience of going through tradecraft training was i had a background in writing i was a very good writer i wrote very quickly and so i would write up stuff very quickly and and end up helping some of my fellow trainees with with their writing. Oh, I bet you did. <laughs> well, that English lit teacher in you probably came through all the time. Yeah, I, I'm the master of the little red pen. <laughs> but yeah, and I mean, training, it, it was fun. It was stressful, but it was also, you know, we were a very um, cohesive group. I To this day, whether they've remained in the CIA or not, and I and I have to say very few of my training class have remained in the CIA, but I've been in touch with a, a large part of them and, um, you know, just fantastic people. I, I really met amazing people at the CIA. And so you were in for, remind me again, how many years? Five years. Five years. Okay. Well, five years in a career like that is probably like 20 to the rest of us in something else. So <laughs> being as well, intense as it was. It's funny. My... My brother uh, was giving a toast at my wedding. And by that time, I had left the agency. Um, I had not written the book, but I had written an article called Why Women Make Better Spies. So I was out there. Um, I had had my cover lifted. And my brother said, you know, Lindsay's one of the few people who could have the most exciting job in the world and leave it because it was too boring. And that's <laughs> not why I left the CIA. You know, I left it for some ideological reasons. Um some personal reasons uh want you know wanting to start a family but also because as i said it wasn't you know as exciting and jet setting and amazing as i as i thought it was going to be and that's you know that's just the reality of it sure sure okay i want to talk a little bit about and i i talk to people all the time about this i want to talk about your transition um because i Lately, not exclusively, but a lot lately, I've been having a lot of former professional athletes on the show. And, you know, when people from afar see this kind of life that these people lead, you know, it seems so, you know, high and lofty. They make lots of money. It's glamorous. And then what is it like to become essentially a regular person? And for some, it's really, really hard. And so I'm curious about this, again, 
I still have a somewhat glamorized view of what it means to be a spy. I mean, I don't know everything that you know, clearly, but it's, it's, it's tempered now. But surely there's got to be something to that transition for you. It couldn't have been just kind of automatic. No, it's not. And, you know, I always say you can take the girl out of the CIA, but you can't take the CIA out of the girl. And that's proved to be very true. Um, I think one of the reasons that I that I was accepted into the clandestine service is because of the kind of um, analytical mind that I have. Um, also, my ability to, you know, think quickly on my feet um, and and above all, people skills. And one of the reasons that it's hard to be an undercover operative at the CIA is because you're very shut off. You're living in a very insular world. You know, you can't share with anyone what you're doing. And necessarily, you have to lie. You lie to people who are very important to you, you know, your parents, your siblings, your spouses or significant others. Uh, They, by and large, do not know where you're working. The few people who might know where you're working, in my case, that was my parents and my brother, um, they have no idea what you're doing. Mm. And so you become, quite frankly, a habitual liar. It's so much a part of your life that you start to lie about everything. And I remember I was warned about this in advance uh, from a female mentor when I first joined the agency. And she said to me, you know, be careful because you start to lie for your job and you end up lying about everything. And I found that to be very true. And well, at the time when she said that to me, I thought, that's not me. You know, I'm, I, I can lie for my job. I can compartmentalize. I can lie for my job. And I'm still going to be the same old Lindsay to everyone else and telling my funny stories and, you know, having lots of friends and um, sharing with people and being able to talk to people and listen to them. And I found that, first of all, the job is so all-consuming. Um, that you end up cutting off a lot of friendships anyway. You never make it to the weddings or the bar bat mitzvahs or the christenings or any of that because you're either in training or you're overseas or, you know, you're doing something operational. So a lot of those relationships suffer. And then you kind of have to explain away everything. And it develops this, your muscle memory, after a very short period of time, your muscle memory is live. And so when I first left the agency, I found that it was kind of hard to break that habit. It was kind of hard to break that muscle memory. You know, I was out, I had had my cover lifted, I had written a book about it, and yet I still found myself sometimes either withholding truths that there was no reason to withhold or being very cagey. Um, with people that were close to me uh, and and just lying when there wasn't a need to. So that was kind of a habit that was hard to break. And that was a, a habit that that obviously needed to be broken. There are other habits that yeah, have proved very useful. Um, as a woman, I think I've always had good situational awareness about danger um, and an ability to read people and to, to recognize scam artists or predators. Uh, that's something that I think many women, uh, if not all, develop over the course of their lifetime, um, being, you know, the physically, traditionally the physically weaker sex, um, or, you know, open to, to more threats and risks. Uh, but then, of course, I was trained at the agency. And so my powers of being able to read people in situations were even more refined. My natural ability to think quickly on my feet had become even better for my training and being operational with the agency. You've got to be able to, when something goes south, you got to think quickly on your feet, stay calm, carry on. 
And those were traits that I had anyway, but were either, were they flourished in the agency or were mm. even more empowered in the agency. And those are all things that I've carried with me through my life. And, you know, certainly helps not only in professional situations, but in personal situations. You know, we talked briefly about the most important role in my life, which is being a mom. And I remember when my first son was born and having this overwhelming realization that like my entire being is now to safeguard this other human being, to keep this person alive and to keep this person from danger. And I got to say, it's that onus is not unlike what you feel sometimes as a CIA operative, because as, a, as an undercover operative, you're handling sources. And those sources, those people who are giving you sensitive or secret information are doing so at tremendous risk to themselves. One thing that I didn't even realize played into my role as a CIA operative because I hadn't tapped into it at that point, I was single, I wasn't a mom, is a maternal instinct. And one of the things that I always talk about when I talk about why I think women make better spies is that maternal, nurturing, empathetic side of women that I think make them more effective case officers in being able to hand, handle foreign agents, being able to counsel them uh, not to be at risk or being able to safeguard them. It was something that I took very seriously. I think that all case officers take seriously. Um, but again, those are traits that I've carried with me throughout my life. And, you know, I will say one th I'm not good at everything. There's a lot of stuff that I'm not good at. I'm very good in a crisis. And it's like, that's, and, and part of that, I think, is my CIA training. Like, that's when I kind of shipped into, you know, four-wheel drive. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned this, this whole thing about basically you become a professional liar in the clandestine services. I mean, that's your job. You have to. And so when you leave that world and you become a civilian again, how difficult it is to eradicate that from what is normal and natural to you. I, I guess my question with all that is, did you have to go through any sort of therapy to help you with that? <laughs> I, I probably should have, but no, I, I didn't. Okay. Um, yeah, no, that's a, that's a, um, it's a very good question. And it's, and I'm, I want to speak a little bit about, um, about therapy, because you bring up something that's, that's really a paradox for people working for the agency. So, um, when you're working for the CIA, you, it is, it is an incredible, as an undercover officer, it is an incredibly stressful job. And what com can compound the stress, because, you know, you're worried not so much about your own life and livelihood, but more about the, the foreign assets or agents that you're running. And if you screw up, you know, and something happens to them for, for, for those people, that could mean prison, that could mean death. So this is like incredibly stressful. Um, at the same time, the agency, it's very important to the agency that, uh, you know, that there not be any cuckoos in the clinic. <laughs> well, yeah. And there, you know, have been a few. I mean, you, one one could argue you almost have to be cuckoo to to be drawn to that line of work. But because you can't talk to anybody who's not clear about what's going on in your life, you cannot seek therapy or psychiatric help outside of the agency. So it's really a catch twenty two. If you're having psychological problems and you're a C, an undercover CIA officer, you can't 
tell your therapist like national secrets. You can't talk to them about this. So you would have to seek help internally at the CIA. But then you're highlighting the fact that you're having psychological difficulties. So this becomes a real problem for the workforce and the, and the workforce that's undercover at the CIA. And there are all sorts of real life issues that affect agency officers, you know, whether it be um, psychological issues, compounding stress, alcoholism. Alcoholism has been a real problem at the CIA from, you know, from its inception. And these problems are compounded by the fact that you can't ask for outside help. Um, so, you know, one could argue leaving the agency uh, and all of a sudden, yeah, I'm going from from a very insular world where I can't show any weakness. I can't show any um, psychological problems to a world where, OK, now, you know, now I'm a free agent. I can go see a therapist if I want. I have to say that it just so happened that when I left the agency and the book came out, it was when my first son was born. And that and I, I think a lot of parents will say this, uh, as hard as that time is, it was the happiest time in my life. And part of that was because I had my brain went from very complex situations and he having to keep track of multiple complicated relationships, um, none of which I could talk about with anyone else to really my sole purpose in life being a mom. And I continued to work. I continued to write. I continued to consult. I continued to do television work. But because I had this primary focus, I think psychologically, that was probably the healthiest time in my life. And, you know, only later, um, as, as sort of that mission was accomplished, you know, my, my kids are, um, are self-sufficient now, you know, they're teenagers, they're great guys. It's, I came to a point in my life where I felt like, oh my gosh, I need another really important mission. I've always been a mission-driven person. And, you know, there was the CIA and then there was motherhood. And now, as you alluded to at the beginning, and, and I know we'll talk about this at a, at a later appearance, um, but working for Deliver Fund and raising funds and, and speaking on behalf of Deliver Fund, an organization that combats human trafficking, again, fills me with that sense of mission. I'm someone who needs to have a greater good. And if I have a greater good, I'm unstoppable. Mm. But so without a greater good, if I don't have that sense of mission, that's not a good place for me to be psychologically. Oh, I, I would say that's true for everybody. You just happen to recognize that. Most folks don't. I think, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's, it's, um, it's funny that you say that because... I think of the times in my life where I felt like, you know, I don't know, like I'm just not having a hard time. I'm having a lot of anxiety or I'm, I'm, um, you know, having depression. Those times have always coincided with a period where like I haven't quite identified what is that mission that I'm working towards. And so, yeah, I've been able to, it's not so much therapy. In fact, it hasn't been therapy, but more uh, self-analysis, as I said, you know, I have a very analytical mind. So I can look back on my life and kind of figure out, okay, those are the places in my life where I felt like I didn't have my footing. And I didn't have my footing because I didn't have, didn't feel like I had a, a purpose, an overarching purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting that you, that you use that term, um, purpose. And I, I think there, I, I have a friend, James Laughlin, and he differentiates between passion and purpose. 
because most folks think they're interchangeable. They're actually not the same thing. And he says it this way, passion is for us. Purpose is for everyone else. That's a great. There are passion projects that's only for us. Purpose is what we do to make a difference in the world. It's why we're here. Those kinds of things. I love it. I'm going to take it a step further with you. And I've started sharing this with people more and more as it's kind of developed in my brain. Um, I don't think it's possible to find your purpose in life without pain. I don't think it's possible because pain is clarifying. It is. It will show you exactly what you need to do in order to get where you need to go. I think you're absolutely right. And I know you're you're probably speaking about, um, you know, both emotional and psychological pain. And I completely agree with that. And right now I'm in a neck brace because I broke my neck. (laughs) Yes, you're in physical pain, clearly. Yes. Um, And it's not so much the... But I will say, you know, I'm 52 years old. And in the last month since I broke my neck, I've had moments of profound clarity and epiphany and learned things that I didn't know before before this accident, Um, which always excites me because it, it reminds me that we are constantly evolving, that, you know, I never want to be at a point in my life where I feel like I've fully arrived. Um, I feel like the the challenge for for all of us to constantly be evolving, to be the best people that we can be or, or, you know, an even better version of ourselves than we were the day before, that that's a driver. Um, But yeah, in, uh, you know, I had a a bad bike accident. I broke the C1 vertebrae in my neck. I've been told a number of times by a number of medical professionals and um, and armchair medical professionals, people who Googled, <laughs> like my son, who immediately Googled broken C1 and, you know, mm. was really, really concerned that I'm lucky not to be, I'm lucky to be alive and I'm, I'm lucky not to be paralyzed. And that um, accident, which occurred, you know, less than a month ago, has already caused some profound and lasting changes in my life. And mm. foremost is something that I've always known was a problem, uh, which is being present. I am someone who's always, th- I, I don't operate in the past, but I operate a lot in the future, you know, uh, getting ahead of myself. I finish my own sentences. I'm always looking to the next thing to do. And having this accident and my life being slowed down, you know, I can't drive, I can't run, I can't bike, I'm sequestered at home, has, uh, number one, in- endowed me with an even greater sense of gratitude than I've ever had in my life. Um, but also kind of clarified me the importance of purpose. Um, right now, I can't pursue a lot of the stuff that I'm passionate about, um, you know, hiking and biking and, you know, outdoor adventure. Um, and so I still have the, the passion, for example, for my work in, in Deliver Fund, but it's more the purpose that's, that's keeping me going. And, and again, reminding me how important that is. And I know I'm getting long-winded here, but um, to go back to what we talked about, you know, my um, my really primary role in life. Yes, my kids are teenagers. Yes, they are self-sufficient. Yes, they're getting ready. My older son getting ready to go off in the world on his own. But having that kind of brush with brush with death or brush with paralysis or that uh, real sort of physical and psychological come to Jesus moment. Uh, reminded me again of how important 
I am in in my kids' lives, you know, seeing that worry on their face of I've I've been a very, I would say, not hands-off mom, but I'm the opposite of a helicopter mom. Like I've okay. a friend of mine and I call each other submarine moms because we kind of just go below the surface and like when we're needed, when we're really needed, we pop up. But I let my kids make their own mistakes. I let them make their own decisions. Um, and they've, you know, made a few mistakes. But that um having this being physically um not able to to do what I normally do for them just reminds me how important I am psychologically in their lives to be mm. in their corner psychologically. You know, you honestly have given your boys a tremendous gift. I don't know if you see it this way, but forcing them in a way, but the nice way to say it is allowing them to fail. Is, that is such a gift. You know that I didn't understand the value of failing until my 40s. My 40s, I didn't understand. And so you really have given them something tremendous because it costs them a lot less to fail now than it will 20 years from now. Thanks for listening to Relationships and Revenue. I'd love to get your thoughts on the show. Two ways you can do that are to give us a rate and review and or connect with me on social media. You can find me at John Hewlin. Thanks again for listening. And remember, passion gets you started. Purpose keeps you going. Have a great day and we'll see you next time. Bye.